we all know the story of Job where he suffered tremendously he had so many things taken away from him his children, his possessions, his health and so forth we probably haven't suffered like Job but to some extent have you ever felt like Job as he expresses himself in Job chapter 7 verses 2 and 3 like a slave who longs for the shadow or shade so I am allotted months of emptiness and nights of misery are apportioned to me have you ever been in a season of your life that was particularly difficult where you just longed for a little bit of shade so to speak a shadow a little bit of shade a little bit of reprieve from the hot sun so to speak God doesn't promise us good circumstances and sometimes he withholds them sometimes as was in the case of Job he withholds good circumstances in an extreme way however often God grants us a little shade in the midst of difficult times sometimes God even gives us a whole month or a whole year sometimes an even a whole decade of shade so to speak where we're not struggling hard sometimes we have seasons of our life that are actually particularly pleasant and particularly comfortable God's doing something like that for Abraham here providing a season of shade for him in the passage that's before us let's look at the events described here a little more closely and make sense of what is actually happening in this passage before we endeavor to draw inferences and applications. Abraham surely must have had an uneasy relationship with Abimelech after the events mentioned in chapter 20. After all, they had worked out that instance of conflict. There was a public vindication of Abimelech's innocency with respect to Sarah. There was a public reproof of Abraham and Abraham left. Everything was cool, at least on the surface. But could you blame Abimelech if he didn't entirely trust Abraham? And could you blame Abraham if he worried that Abimelech was just waiting and looking for an opportunity to take some kind of revenge. After all, that was, a pretty, that was a pretty bad incident. And you could understand that the relationship between these two would be, could be a little uneasy. Could be a little tense. You ever had that kind of relationship with someone where you're kind of hoping you don't really run into them in the supermarket? Or something like that? There's maybe you've had a conversation to try to address an issue and it's sort of resolved, but there's also sort of an uneasiness. You'd have to think that Abimelech and Abraham's relationship was something like that. They probably weren't best friends. And they probably weren't just waiting for the next opportunity when they would happen to run into one another. And though Abraham had been a sojourner for the last large section of his life since he left his homeland at God's bidding 
Abraham was now over 100 years old and father to the long-awaited child, Isaac. And being a father makes you think differently about issues of home security and self-defense. So it's in this context of uneasiness and this vulnerable little child in Abraham's household that Abimelech shows up with the commander of his army to speak to Abraham. The very approach of Abimelech with the commander of his army, given their history especially, might have made Abraham a little nervous. The way that you might feel a little nervous if you were approached by someone who you had had a past conflict with and here they come with their lawyer. And you think to yourself, oh, what's going on here? But it's good news. Abimelech actually wants to form a peace treaty with Abraham. The very fact that a king approaches Abraham to initiate a peace treaty is part of God's fulfillment of His promise to Abraham from way back in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 2 that He would make His name great. I've never had a king or a president or a prime minister phone me to say, hey, I just want to make sure everything is alright between us. I noticed that you are an important person and I just want to make sure our relationship's okay. But you see, that's exactly what's going on here. Abimelech comes to Abraham and says, God is with you in all that you do. He's seeing the blessing, the prosperity of Abraham. He's seeing how God is making Abraham into a great nation. He's seeing how God is making Abraham's name great. Abraham's thriving. And Abimelech is being proactive here. He's not waiting until a problem comes up between him and Abraham. He's saying, let's make sure our relationship is okay. Let's formalize this. That's what's going on here. So, so this initiating of a peace treaty is part of God's fulfillment of His promise to Abraham to make His name great. But more is going on here than that. God is providentially providing a season of peace and quiet for Abraham. Abraham is being offered some shade in these regions, so to speak. Abraham's being allowed to make his dwelling there semi-permanent without fear from the other inhabitants or the ruler of that land. So Abraham himself is a force to be reckoned with as we saw when he defeated the kings from the east several chapters ago. But now also the ruler of the land, Abimelech, and Abimelech's army, therefore, are also becoming allies to Abraham. So realistically, Abraham has nothing to worry about. He's, he's a big boy in the land, and Abimelech's a big boy in the land, and both of them are on the same team now. So this is a really good situation for Abraham, where he can relax and make his dwelling place semi-permanent without fear. But Abraham's not naive, and he doesn't blindly enter into this treaty with Abimelech, just taking his word for it, so to speak, but he puts a test to him first to try to figure out where Abimelech's intentions are at. Abraham says in verse 24 that he's willing in principle to enter into a treaty, 
But he tests Abimelech's intentions by reproving him about a well, well that he's dug. That's what's going on here. He says, yeah, I will swear, but first let's talk about this well. I dug this well, but your servants came and seized it. So he says, let's get this out of the way if we're going to make a treaty. Because if Abimelech has ill will towards him, it's going to come up now. And Abraham figures, well, let's just deal with it. If there's going to be problems. But Abimelech says, I, don't, I do not know who has done this thing. You didn't tell me. And I hadn't heard about it to this day. In other words, this isn't Abimelech's doing. His servants may have done something. But Abimelech is saying, I am not guilty in this matter. I didn't do this. Only after Abimelech answers Abraham satisfactorily, showing that his intentions are true, is Abraham willing to formalize the covenant. So, after he reproves him about the well, and Abimelech says, yeah, I'm sorry, that shouldn't have happened. I didn't know about it. Thanks for bringing it to my attention. Let's rectify this situation. That's kind of what's going on here. Then Abraham is ready to formalize this peace treaty, to formalize this covenant. So Abraham took sheep and oxen, verse 27, and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. As would have been the custom, Abraham, the lesser of the two parties, gives gifts to Abraham, the greater of the two parties. That's what's happening in verse 27. It's a sign of respect and deference. Then in verses 28 to 30, Abraham sets apart seven lambs from among the rest of the livestock that he gives to Abimelech. And these seven lambs are symbolic, not enriching. So we're not to think, wow, how generous he gave Abimelech not one, but seven lambs. That's not the point of what's going on here in this section. Rather, it's more like the giving of a wedding ring as a symbol of the marriage covenant. What matters most is not so much the value of the wedding ring as what that ring represents. So you could have a ring that costs thousands of dollars or you could have a ring that costs $20. And it just... You're laughing, but mine did. It's stainless steel and I bought it at a shopping mall in Canada. But what, but what matters is... What matters is what the ring represents. My, my wife has one that costs considerably more. We saved some money here to put it on her hand. What matters most is not the value of the symbol, but what is represented by the symbol. And that's what's going on with the lambs. So in giving these seven, these seven represent Abraham's ownership of this particular well. But in accepting these lambs, Abimelech is acknowledging Abraham's ownership of this particular well. And the exchange here also shows that the well dispute has been satisfactorily resolved. And so Abraham now knows that Abimelech's intentions in entering into this treaty are just and sincere. So now Abraham has an alliance with the ruler of this region in which he's sojourning. And the opportunity then to sojourn safely and comfortably for a long time there. Which in fact he does do, according to verse 34. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. So this is the cause of Abraham's worship in verse 33. He's thanking God for the shade that God has granted him. 
his circumstances have taken a turn for the better. And Abraham wants to give credit where credit's due. And it's this turn of events here for the better that prompts Abraham to plant the tamarisk tree. The tree seems to come out of nowhere, right? You're reading through and it's like, okay, they make a covenant, Abraham worships, that all makes sense. But why does it mention that he plants a tree? There's three options that are possible here. Perhaps Abraham plants the tree as a symbol of what God has done for him. The Bible background commentary says this, The tamarisk grows in sandy soil. It is deciduous and may reach over 20 feet in height, with small leaves that excrete salt. Its bark is used for tanning and its wood for burning, or pardon me, for building and making charcoal. Bedouin commonly plant this hardy tree for its shade and the branches which provide grazing for animals. Abraham's action probably signifies the sealing of the treaty with Abimelech, a life-giving plant symbolizing a fertile and prosperous future. So this is a, this is a hearty tree that has many benefits, and it is... I was wondering if it's a typo. The commentary says hearty, but I was wondering if it's supposed to say hardy. In other words, it will survive well, because it says here that it grows in sandy soil. So in the desert here, God has provided some prosperity for Abraham. In an area of scarce water, which makes the well so important, God has provided for Abraham a well, some safety, some comfort, so on and so forth. So Abraham plants a tree that thrives in the midst of difficult circumstances to represent what God has done for him. Or... Perhaps Abraham just realizes that it's now worthwhile and practical to plant a tree, seeing as he'll be there for a while. That's another possibility. And now we come to the third option, which is both. <laughs> In other words, you're not going to bother to plant a garden if you're, if you're moving on tomorrow. But you might plant a garden if you're going to be there for a while. And so there's practical advantages to doing something like that. But sometimes you might, do, you might plant a tree or do something like that as, a, as something which signifies something else. So, I mean, I know people who have planted a tree in their backyard when each of their children were born or something like that. And it just signifies something. And then as the children get older, you can talk to them about what it represents and that kind of thing. Abraham might be doing one or the other or both. But it at least, at least is the second, which is that at the very least, Abraham recognizes that he's going to be here for a while and he wants some shade beside this well that he dug. At the least, that's what's going on. So what we see is that God has created a comfortable, safe, pleasant season for Abraham in his life here. God has provided good, temporal circumstances for Abraham in this situation. The first thing we need to consider as we attempt to draw right inferences and applications from this passage is this. That God hasn't promised us good temporal circumstances. So we don't, we don't go name and claim treaties with kings. Right? We're not going around decreeing and declaring that God will give us favor with people in high positions and make for us our, own, our very own Beersheba. Right? That would be the wrong inference to draw from this. God hasn't promised us 
good temporal circumstances. In fact, Jesus says, in this world you'll have trouble. So, so the preachers that are like, if you're spiritual, you're not going to have trouble. Trust Jesus and your relational problems are going to go away. Trust Jesus and your financial problems are going to go away. Believe God for a better future. Believe God for a change, a breakthrough in this situation or that situation. They're basically telling you, in this world, you're not going to have trouble. Which flies directly in the face of what Jesus said. In this world, you will have trouble. So, we need to think about that. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul's relaying his own circumstance. But it's more broadly applicable because he's not talking only about the experience of an apostle in this section, but he's talking about the experience of a Christian. And so the fact that he's an apostle is actually incidental in this section of 2 Corinthians 4, beginning at verse 7. He says, We have this treasure in jars of clay, the treasure being the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. In other words, we have a treasure, but we have it in a weak container. Now that is true of all Christians and not just apostles. Then he goes on to say, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. There are preachers who want to say, You will not be crushed. You will not be driven to despair. You will not be forsaken. You will not be destroyed. Which is true. But what they don't want to say is you will be afflicted. You will be perplexed. You will be persecuted. And you will be struck down. Paul is telling us that the experience of a Christian who has a treasure in jars of clay is that you're going to be afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, and struck down. We should expect life to be hard. The second thing we need to consider as we attempt to draw the right, refer- the right inferences and applications from this passage is that God has promised us spiritual good in the midst of difficult temporal circumstances. In that same chapter, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16, we read this, We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. So as you go through the hard things, As you're afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, inwardly you're being renewed day by day. That is a promise of God's Word. You can go to Him in prayer and say, Oh God, You have promised that as we struggle through this life, You're going to renew us day by day. You have promised that Your strength is sufficient for us. I need that strength. I need that sustenance. 2 Corinthians 1 talks about being burdened beyond your strength in order to make you rely on God. So again, you can go to God in prayer and say, I feel burdened beyond my strength. I want this to drive me to you so that you will help me rely on you. These are things you can claim. Spiritual good in the midst of difficult temporal circumstances. Now the third thing that we need to consider as we attempt to draw the right inferences and applications from this passage is this. 
God has promised us good eternal circumstances, both body and soul. Heaven is not an ethereal place where spirits go, but bodies don't go. 1 Corinthians 15 is real clear. There's a resurrection of the body coming. And our bodies are going to be like Jesus' resurrected body, in which Luke 24 makes a point of telling us that He ate a piece of broiled fish. So whether or not we will eat broiled fish in heaven is a question for another time. But whether we will have the capacity to eat broiled fish in heaven, the answer is a resounding yes. That's what heaven is going to be like. You can eat broiled fish. You have the capacity to eat broiled fish in heaven. So if that doesn't fit with your conception of heaven, you've got to reconceive. You hear prosperity gospel preachers talk about how healing is included in the atonement. And how prosperity is included in the atonement. And so we need to claim that because of what Jesus has done, we need to claim and appropriate what He's won for us, which is supposedly health and wealth. But then what you hear is people combating the prosperity gospel preachers by saying health is not included in the atonement and wealth is not included in the atonement. Alright, now hear me carefully. We are not promised health now. And we are not promised wealth now. But hear me carefully. There's not going to be anyone in heaven who's sick. And the basis of that health is not what we have done, but what Christ has done. And there's not going to be anyone in heaven that's struggling with poverty. And the basis of that financial stability and security is not going to be what we have done, but what Christ has done. In other words, in that sense, with the proper qualifiers, health and wealth is included in the atonement. Because God has provided a rescue for us from sin and the effects of sin that has begun now and will one day be completed. And we're going to be well in body and soul in heaven. And so God has promised us good eternal circumstances, body and soul. But we come back to the first thing that I said we need to consider as we attempt to draw the right inferences and applications from this passage. God hasn't promised us good temporal circumstances here and now. So you don't go try to claim that your sore leg's going to get better because of the atonement here and now. One day it will be better. You're not going to have a sore leg for eternity. But you can't claim that right now, on the basis of what Jesus has done, this is going to happen. Right? And you're not, you're not going to be struggling with hunger and empty cupboards in eternity. But right now you might. So we need to understand that God hasn't promised these things here and now. But the, the fourth thing, the first thing was God hasn't promised us good temporal circumstances. The second is God has promised us spiritual good in the midst of difficult temporal circumstances. The third thing is God has promised us good eternal circumstances, body and soul. The fourth thing, the fourth thing is this. Sometimes God does give us good temporal circumstances. 
And that's what He does for Abraham in this passage. Sometimes God just deals kindly with us and gives us good circumstances. This is called common grace. It's called common grace because God gives it to believers and unbelievers alike. In other words, you don't have to be a Christian to have a good circumstance. You don't have to be a Christian to get a promotion at your job. You don't have to, you don't have to be a Christian to have a good friend. You don't have to be a Christian to have a good harvest one year if you're a farmer. You don't have to be a Christian to have these things happen. And sometimes God does these things for His people as well as for those who are not His people. Which is why it's called common grace. Now to the unbeliever, common grace is merely akin to pain-relieving drugs on a patient in the palliative care unit. The palliative care unit is where people go to die. To the unbeliever, common grace is just making this world a little more tolerable while they make their way to hell. To the believer though, to the believer, common grace is a foretaste of what's to come. To the believer, common grace is an appetizer like you might get at a restaurant before the main course comes. We have an eternal hope of good circumstances, body and soul. Sometimes we go outside and our body feels good and healthy. And it's a beautiful morning. And we look and we see the sun. And we breathe in the fresh air. And we go to work and we have a good day. And it goes fine. And we come home. And our family is cheerful. And our children are obedient. And we lay down and we're like, wow, that was a good day. (laughs) Sometimes that happens. And for us as believers, it's a foretaste of what's to come. We're not going to be struggling with sin and the effects of sin forever. So this common grace is like signposts along the way that are pointing us forward to a better thing. Temporal grace... Temporal common grace now is a taste of what's to come. Anyone, anyone, you don't have to be a child of God to have what Abraham had here at Beersheba. You don't have to be a child of God to have alliances with powerful people and relative safety and comfort. Common grace is what's going on in this passage. But it's common grace to one of God's own. It's rest in the promised land that points towards rest in the promised land. Hebrews 11 tells us that Abraham was looking for a better country. But he found a little rest and a little comfort in this country while he was making his way to that country. Common grace is what's going on in this passage. And that's the function of it in Abraham's life. A few more things about common grace. Common grace is necessary for a sinful world to function. Think about it. Without common grace, if God gave everybody only what they deserved, Judgment Day would just be right now. So, common grace is necessary for a sinful world to function. 
Common grace is necessary as we pursue light, order, and life in our vocations, as we talked about at the beginning of Genesis. God put us here in this world to develop the potentiality that He's woven into this world for His glory, for our good, and for our own enjoyment, for the intrinsic goodness of the process. If we are to be successful in our vocations, in creating light, order, and life, and developing the potentiality of this world, we need common grace. Because if, if you can only achieve what you can muscle by your own power without God's hand in it, giving more than you deserve, giving others more than they deserve, you're going to be, it's going to be not just thorns and thistles, but utter futility. So common grace is necessary in this respect. And then, as I said, common grace makes, points us towards a better country, but also makes the journey there easier. As I mentioned a moment ago, Abraham was looking for a better country, Hebrews 11 says. So you could say that his whole life is a journey towards that better country, that heavenly one. His whole life was a journey towards a better city whose builder and foundation is God, Hebrews 11 tells us. So his whole life was a journey there. Common grace makes the journey a little bit easier. You could go through this life like Job and still get there to that better country and that better city, but the journey would be real hard. Common grace makes it a little bit easier as we make our way there. In other words, you could wake up and just suffer with tremendous chronic pain, illness, loved ones around you could die, you get fired from your job, your car breaks down, and so on and so forth. Every day in your whole life could be a huge struggle. All of the eternal goodness that God promised to you in Christ Jesus would still be yours. And you would inevitably, in due time, inherit it. But the journey is a lot easier with the common grace that God provides along the way. In 1 Peter, the Apostle refers to Christians as exiles. Exiles. In other words, we don't belong here. At least not in this world in its present form. We are like Abraham on our way to a better country. We are like Abraham away from home. Common grace makes it easier to be in exile. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 29. This is the chapter with the well-known verse, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you, etc., etc., But earlier on, we read that God says to His people in Jeremiah chapter 29, beginning at verse 4, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, 
take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. (coughs) The Jews have been taken to exile in Babylon in this section. And God's saying you're going to be there for a while. 70 years. So enjoy yourself there. Get comfortable. Build some houses. Plant some gardens. Get married. Have some sons and daughters. Raise them. Find spouses for them. Because you're still not going home anytime soon. Then Peter, in the New Testament, calls us exiles. You see what's going on here? Abraham was something of an exile, something of a sojourner. These people in Jeremiah 29 were something of exiles, something of sojourners. We are called something like exiles, something like sojourners. God gives us common grace to make our journey easier as we sojourn. To make our exile easier until we can go home. He gives us things like gardens and houses and wives and sons and daughters, common grace that make the sojourning better, make the exile easier. God is kind to us in this respect. So there's nothing wrong with enjoying common grace. There's nothing wrong with enjoying common grace. First Timothy chapter six and verse seventeen says that God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And that occurs in the context of the warning to those who are rich in the present age. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So Paul is actually not writing about spiritual blessings at this point. He's writing about riches. And he's saying, don't actually set your hope on the riches. Set your hope on the God who gives the riches to be enjoyed. But implicit in that is he's saying, sometimes God gives riches to be enjoyed. He hasn't promised all of his people riches. You can't name and claim and decree and declare riches. But God might actually just give you riches to enjoy. And if He does, that's actually okay to enjoy them. Nothing wrong with enjoying common grace. God gives common grace to point to a future world, to make the journey there easier, to sustain us in exile while we wait to go there. So embrace legitimate gifts of God. We talked this morning on the Seventh Commandment about sex. Enjoy sex with your spouse if you're married. It's a gift of God to enjoy. Don't be more spiritual than God. Hobbies. You've heard me warn about the danger of hobbies before. But nothing wrong in principle. Within the right parameters. Go plant a garden like the exiles in Babylon. Or for me, go train your dog. 
comforts. We don't believe the prosperity gospel, but you don't have to overreact and, and be like one of those monks who goes out in the hot sun all day and, and, and whips yourself. You know, and wears itchy, they actually used to, some of them used to make itchy underwear made of horse hair or something like that. Just to, just to give themselves no earthly comfort. <laughs> you don't have to do that. It's okay to have a home. And it's okay if your home, if you want to have air conditioning or something. Feel free to put in an air conditioning unit. Right? Or, or if, if you live in a place like we do that has lots of mosquitoes, feel free to install some screens. It's okay to buy a car. And if you can afford it, it would even be okay to buy a new one. There wouldn't be anything wrong with that. Enjoy music. Even if it's made by non-Christians. It's okay. God gives us good things to enjoy. He gives to His people sometimes as He unfolds His providence good earthly circumstances. Common grace. And there's nothing wrong with embracing God's common grace. It's something that He does for Abraham here in this passage. And it's something that He does for us from time to time. The right response of our hearts to common grace ought to be to enjoy it and to worship the God from whence it comes. Or from whom it comes, rather. In Genesis chapter 21 and verse 33, we read that there Abraham called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. So go enjoy your life. Go enjoy common grace. Don't set your hope on common grace because these things can be here one minute and gone the next. Set your hope on the God who provides you with these good things to enjoy. And put common grace in perspective. As I said a little earlier, for the unbeliever, common grace is like pain-relieving medication to a terminally ill patient. It's just numbing someone's pain while they're on their way to hell. Common grace pales in comparison to saving grace. Our greatest hope, our greatest hope is that Christ has come and lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died and that by faith in Him we belong to God. We are reconciled to Him. We are His own sons and daughters and He who began a good work will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. And He will raise our bodies from the grave and we will live with Him forever in new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. This has to be our central hope. Common grace pales in comparison to that. But it's the same God who gives us saving grace, who gives us common grace. And if God has seen fit to bless us with these things, you don't need to be an ascetic about it. You can enjoy these things and call on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God, even as you plant a tamarisk tree. Better a life like Job now with a destiny like Job hereafter. 
than to have your best life now filled with common grace and then go to hell. However, when God grants us good circumstances, when the Lord orchestrates for us a circumstance like He orchestrated for Abraham at Beersheba, call on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God, and enjoy it. Plant a tree.